P. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We are joined in the studio studio by Jeff Morneau. Jeff is with us today because we have been covering the governor's counselor race. That is a constitutional position. It is on the ballot. There is a race, a contest for the Democratic nomination. So you get to vote that first Tuesday in September for this. Uh, Jeff Morneau is one of four uh, persons who are seeking the seat. The others are Tara Jacobs, uh, Mike Fenton, and Sean Allen. They have all been on the show. And all four of the candidates will be back on this show next Tuesday and we'll explore what they have said in our previous conversations. Jeff Morneau, I'm so pleased you can be with us, and I want to deliver a bit of news that's not news to you, but it is kind of under what we'd call news, which is you've been working at this race, and so have your, your opponents, for many, many months. You have done all of the things that candidates do, and yet I suspect that most people still don't know, and despite the coverage on this station and significant coverage in both the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder, most people still don't know what the governor's council does, why it exists, and why they should be concerned about it. Now, as a lawyer, I want to bang my head against the wall and say, this really (laughs) matters. It's a really important job. It counts. But that said, we can only do what we can do. And it's not the only race on the ballot where people are not really informed about who the candidates are, what their positions are, and how they would serve if elected. So with that as an introduction, why don't you take two minutes and tell our listeners who have not been following this race who you are, what your resume is, what your qualifications are, and why you want to be the governor's counsel for the 8th District. We should point out the 8th District is Western Massachusetts is the four western counties, plus even a little bit of uh, Worcester County, too. So, Jeff Morneau, the microphone for two minutes is yours. Let's hear the stump speech. All right. Or, or well, some so, variation there. So it'll be some variation of that for sure, Bill. Thanks for uh, having us on, and thanks for really informing your listeners, not just about this race, but about, about all races. Um, this race is super important. Uh, my name's Jeff Morneau, candidate for Governor's Council, progressive Democrat, originally from Holyoke, live in East Longmeadow now. I am a practicing lawyer. I have been a lawyer for over 20 years, and my law practice for the last 20 years has been devoted almost exclusively to representing labor groups, employees, and consumers, fighting for working-class people fighting things like wage theft, fighting discrimination, fighting for um, equal pay, fighting for um, all sorts of progressive employment rights, fighting for better working conditions, wages on behalf of labor groups, and taking on big businesses and insurance companies that commit unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And we've been doing that for 20 years on either on an individual basis, taking the smallest of cases that have, that have merit and bringing those forward, all the way up to large class action lawsuits where you can really um, impact uh, the community at large and make change. So, you know, that's my professional background. I have served as president of, the, uh, of a bar association, which is really where... The Hamden County Bar Association? 
Hamden County Bar Association, which is really where I got interested, uh, became started to get more interested in this governor's council position about what does it do? How do people become judges? How can we make this process better and improve our, our judiciary? And when I was president back in 2016 or so, what I did, Bill, was reach out um, almost immediately to our um, existing governor's counselor and most importantly to the other bar association leaders here in Hampshire County at the time. It was Marissa Elkins. And then up in Berkshire County was Rich Dahoney. And we got together with the governor's counselor and said, we want to know what's going on here. How is this working? What can we do as bar association leaders to improve, um, to get more people to apply, to improve the diversity? To apply to the position of being a judge. To apply to become a position of the judge. There's lots of qualified people out there who would make outstanding judges. What can we do? How do we educate the legal community and the public about how you become a judge. Because at the time, and even today, I think a lot of people believe that um, if you don't have political connections, if you don't have uh, that political base, that the becoming a judge requires some version of political connections. And, and we wanted to change that perception and, and improve it. Okay, so let's back up. What does the governor's council do? What is its role with regard to selecting and approving judges? Great question. And what I like to say about this position is that unlike all of the other positions that people vote for on September 6th, so you're, you know, whether it be city council, state rep, state senate, any of the other races where you have candidates that do a wide variety of things, all sorts of things in your community, your governor's counselor is an expert and really just does two very specific things. It helps. Um, and it basically approves or denies any judges and members of the parole board. That's really what it does. It votes on judges and paroles and pardons. Okay. Go back for a second, if you would, which note we're speaking with Jeff Morneau, Attorney Jeff Morneau, who is a candidate for the Governor's Council here in Western Massachusetts. It's the 8th District, so there are seven others. Uh, and the Lieutenant Governor presides over the Governor's Council. As you've told us, the Governor's Council approves or disapproves the governor's nominations for judges for all courts in the Commonwealth, land court, probate court, superior court, appeals court, Supreme Judicial Court, although all those positions have recently been filled, all of them, uh, by Governor Baker, but all of the courts and the parole board. And what's missing from that description that I'd like for you to fill in for us, please, Jeff, is how does the nomination get to the governor's council because the governor's council doesn't pick. The governor's council is the final uh, stop along the way towards a judgeship. So explain that to our listeners, if you would, please. Sure. Uh, so the, the process starts just like any job. It starts with an application. There's a two-part application. One, one part of it is blind. And anybody who wants to apply uh, fills that out. And that application is very, very detailed. It takes any uh, anybody who wants to apply and to apply right about a f about a full week of time to complete that application the correct way. That application gets submitted to a body called the Joint Nominating Committee. Um, that committee is made up of uh, people who are selected by the governor, um, and they serve on a committee. It's sort of like an interview panel, and they take a look at the applications, and just like any job, they decide who is going to be interviewed. Um, it gets narrowed down. People are interviewed. After the interview, like any job, 
um, somebody may or may not move forward. Okay, stop there for one sec. That committee, who, who appoints the members of that committee? Or Sure, that, that's the governor. So the governor appoints the members of that committee. Those are political appointees. It's overseen by, um, it's overseen by one person, but those are all uh, government appointees. Typically, there's, a, typically there's geographical diversity um, on that committee, and that, that's sort of how it is. So if you go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so you yeah. apply there. Uh, you fill out it is a long, complicated, detailed application. It is now. It wasn't uh, 30, 40 years ago, but it really is now. It asks for everything you've ever done in and outside the law. Okay, so it goes to the Joint Nominating Committee. Then what happens? So then from there, if you make your way through that, through that committee um, with a recommendation from the Joint Nominating Committee that you become a judge, you then your application then goes to a committee that I've actually served on, the Joint Bar Committee, which is a committee that is made up of... Uh, people from each individual local bar association across the state with a little bit of a weighted balance towards the Boston Bar Association and Mass Bar Association representatives. Um, That committee does essentially what the governor's council does. And so that committee meets as a group, the candidates are reviewed, the applications are looked at, somebody, one or two people are assigned to uh, take a look at that judicial applicant and go back to that applicant's community and get the, get the dirt, get all the information that they can on that individual. So you're talking to the... And the good stuff, not just the dirt. Not just the dirt, <laughs> the good stuff too. So you're, yeah, you're reaching out to um, the lawyers that that person has worked with over their career. You're reaching out to the staff at the law firm that that person had worked with. You're reaching out to judges they've appeared before, lawyers that they've appeared on the other side of. And really the deal maker or a real difference maker for me is not just there, but also reaching out to members of the community in which that lawyer came from to find out what is this person really like as a human being. Okay. Then what happens? So then from there, um, that the, it comes back to the joint bar committee for a vote. You get voted either uh, well, well qualified, qualified or not qualified, and that recommendation goes to the governor. Just one? Just one. Just one. Typically one goes to the governor. Sometimes there's more than one uh, that comes out of the joint bar and goes to the governor. But in my experience, when I served on the joint bar committee, there was usually one candidate at that point. For the, an open judgeship? For, an, for one particular open judgeship. Okay. And then it goes, that goes to the governor? Goes to the governor for the governor's, governor's review based upon the governor then takes a look at everything. And if the governor decides that the governor wants to submit that person to the governor's council, the governor will do that. If not, then sometimes it will go back to the drawing board, or there may be other candidates uh, for that particular position. But essentially, the governor is going to make a decision. And I've, I've, when I was there, you know, I've seen it go multiple different ways. I've seen people stop at the governor's desk. I've seen it go back out for uh, go all the way back out for a new process. And obviously, you've seen them seen people come through right to the governor's council. Okay, and then it goes to the governor's council for an up or down vote, yes or no, on confirming that nominee to a judgeship. That, that's correct. That's exactly how it works. Okay, so uh, you're an attorney. You tell us what you do and what your practice is. Uh, do you think that being a lawyer is an important, or let me rephrase that, is a prerequisite or is a, a necessary qualification for this position? 
I, I don't think it's a prerequisite for the qualification for an elected office. I do think that it is extremely helpful to be a lawyer and, and really, Bill, not just be a lawyer, but be a lawyer who litigates in the court system. I, you know, I, I think to be a lawyer and litigating in the court system, that's where you really get experience as to what um, makes a good or a good or bad judge. Um, appearing before a variety of different judges in a variety of different courts, you get the you get the sense of of what works and what doesn't work in terms of you know you see intellect, you see integrity, you see temperament, you see work ethic of a variety of different judges in a variety of different courts, and you get to experience that yourself. And when you do that, I think that is certainly a, a leg up from somebody who's you know a, a lawyer, for example, who is a transactional lawyer and doesn't appear in court, um, or somebody who doesn't have a law degree and isn't familiar with the with the court system. I think I hear references to opponents. I hear that in the background. <laughs> We're going to explore that right after the break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Saluting our community's first responders today and every day. Greenfield Fire Chief Bob Strayon on his crew's tireless service and their professionalism and resiliency shown during COVID. Every day is a constant threat of becoming exposed or getting ill from the virus. We take our precautions when we interact with the public, especially on medical calls. We use our proper protective equipment. Um, I just commend them for the efforts that they've put from day one before the pandemic, starting to recover from the pandemic. The fire department, especially the firefighters they stand ready for any challenge that comes their way and uh, they've done a great job and they will continue to do a great job to keep the community safe we're grateful for our first responders and so are our sponsors lundgren honda of greenfield experience it everyone at lundgren honda knows our first responders give so much to our community so now they want to give back to them in appreciation for their service and dedication local first responders are invited to lundgren honda of greenfield.com's homepage for details on an exclusive offer thank you for keeping our communities safe Lady and the Amp Fest 3, celebrating 35 years of rocking the boat. A day-long music festival this Saturday at the Institute for Musical Arts in Goshen, featuring students, faculty, and alumna from the past 20 years of IMA's Summer Rock Program for Girls and Young Women, with performances by Hannah Mohan from Topsy, Sarah Kahansky from EIEIO, Ray Kimura from Moxie, and many more, as well as the IMA Faculty Band featuring the legendary June Millington from Fanny, Evelyn Harris, formerly Sweet Honey in the Rock and now Stompbox Trio, as well as local hero favorites, Aaron McKeown, Marcia Gomes, and Janelle Berto. The festival will also honor the short and inspiring life of IMA alumna, Jana Abramovitz, including a set by members of her band, Tropical Hot Sauce. The Lady and the Amp Fest 3, this Saturday on the lawn in front of IMA's Big Barn. Music starts at noon. More details and for tickets, IMA.org.
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Jeff Morneau, who is a candidate for the governor's council here in Western, well, from the 8th District, which is Western Massachusetts. Uh, Jeff has three opponents, Tara Jacobs, Mike Fenton, and Sean Allen. All four candidates will be with us on this show next, next week. So I'd like to go back if, uh, to something we were talking about during the break. Monty raised the question, which I, my oversight, so let's ask it, um, is this a full-time job and what does it pay? Uh, it's it's not a full-time job, um, but it does take a significant amount of time. Um, so I'd say, you know, you've got, you've got a weekly meeting um, in Boston, and then you've got a lot that you have to do in order to prepare for that meeting and then follow up from that meeting. So, but it's, it's not a full-time job like a, like a state senator or a state representative. It's more like your, uh, more like a city council type position. Because you would think, given that judgeships are lifetime appointments, that there wouldn't be all that many of them on a, say, week-to-week basis. So what are the, what's happening in those weekly meetings when there's not a judgeship that needs to be filled? Or are, are there always judgeships that need to be filled that we just, as the general public, don't really hear about? Yeah, there's usually there's usually stuff to do every every week when you're down there. Um, there's usually um, you know there's usually judicial appointments or parole board appointments, and and hopefully down the road, um, there's more votes on more votes on pardons and commutations. Um, so there's there's lots of stuff to do as your governor's counselor, and and you got to do you know you have to prepare for the following meetings anyway. So you're really vetting those you're vetting those candidates in the time that you're actually not sitting in the governor's council chamber. Um, actually questioning the candidates or asking questions and actually uh, voting up or down. In the meantime, you're, you know, you're doing your reach out. You're vetting that person before you make your very important decision. And a lot of people think, you know, just like you said, Monty, lifetime appointments, it's really in Massachusetts until you're 70. Um, and, and unlike, you know, the Supreme Court, everybody goes to the Supreme Court, it's lifetime appointment. Right. Once you're over 70, your life's over anyway. So. <laughs> not, 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 not here. Not, not, not in my world, I can tell you that. Some people, it's ju- just a new life is beginning. That was just so. my way of needling Newman. <laughs> Something else we could call the show. A new title. Needling Newman. Newman, I like Monty it. Belmont. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and and the, the there is a salary. This is compensated position. The, there is a salary. I haven't looked at it recently. It's somewhere in the thirty thousand dollar range. I haven't I haven't looked at it recently, to be honest with you, Bill. Yeah, yeah I thought it was about somewhere between twenty five and twenty seven, something like that, thousand dollars. I'd like to uh, ask you this. You talked about and you made reference to uh, lawyers who are in court and. Uh, as that and that and having that experience as being important to be able to judge people who are coming before you for this appointment until age 70. They're going to serve for a long time in a given court and how to evaluate beforehand what that person will be as a judge and whether black robes or a black robe is going to change that person. It's it's prognostication, it's guesswork in some ways, it's, it's making these appraisals and evaluations. I'd like to know this. A lot of what judges do uh, 
uh, in superior court and district court uh, is deal with criminal criminal matters. And as you've described your experience, you don't have that experience. So I'm wondering whether or not you see that as a uh, space in your candidacy that is not filled or not. No, I, you know, I, I don't. I don't do criminal work, um, but that does not impact the ability to determine whether or not somebody is going to make a good judge. Um, what you're really looking at is having the experience of appearing before judges and seeing how does that judge treat people, whether they be there for a criminal matter or a civil matter. How are they treating the litigants before them? How are they treating the lawyers that come before them? How are they treating the staff that works in the courthouse? How are they handling the courtroom procedurally? Are they respectful? Are they thoughtful? Are they caring? Are they compassionate? You know, do they care about their job? Or, as you just said, Bill, you know, has the robe changed them in some way um, after becoming a judge? And I think those are the important things um, and having the experience of appearing before a judge on criminal or civil matters is really what you're evaluating. You mentioned a few moments ago, Jeff, the uh, role of the governor's council in pardons and commutations. And I would appreciate it if you would tell our listeners what that role is and how you view it. So the, your governor's counselor uh, is involved in the selection, you know, the approving of the nominees for the parole board. Uh, members of the parole board, uh, there are seven of them, and they have staggered, they have staggered five-year terms. So unlike the judges that are there at 70, the parole board is there for uh, five years and they're on staggered terms. And the governor's council also votes up or down on all uh, pardons and commutations, which there have not been enough of here in Massachusetts over the last, let's just call it, quarter of a century. So the parole board, from my perspective, needs really a complete and total overhaul, um, not just in terms of the people that sit on it, but also um, in terms of the process and procedures that are in place. Um, we need to get more people on the parole board that actually have a full understanding of substance use disorder, um, that understand addiction. Um, and we just don't have that right now um, on the parole board. So people are coming before the parole board and being denied, or there are not enough people that are coming before the parole board in general? Well, in, in terms of for parole, it, 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 there's people coming for parole. There's lots of people on parole. But what we're really talking about here are pardons and commutations is really where the, the biggest problem is, um, and that's where the overhaul needs to change. Here in Massachusetts, we have had less than 10 less than 10 um, pardons and commutations in a quarter of a century over the last 20 years. You cross the border into Connecticut and you have hundreds of them a year. I mean, there's a problem there, right? Romney's had two commutations. Even our most progressive governor that we've had in the last 20 years, Deval Patrick, he only had a total of something like five or seven pardons and commutations. You go back to, you go back to Romney, zero. Weld had 25 or 30. Um, uh, Jane Swift had like eight. You go back to Dukakis, there were 850 pardons and commutations. And you go before that to, uh, to Sargent, who had 
1,600 pardons and commutations. Now, I know times have changed, but they can't have changed that much. There's a problem here in Massachusetts. Hmm. Yeah, for our listeners, a, a pardon is the governor. The same thing works in the federal system from the president. A pardon absolves the person of the crime for which they have been com, uh, convicted. A commutation uh, relieves the person of the sentence, but leaves the underlying conviction intact. And that's a governor's prerogative here in the state. Um, the parole board rules on paroles. People apply for parole after a certain amount of the sentence. It's complicated. We're not going to go into the weeds on this this morning. But they have a hearing in front of the parole board, and what the governor's council does is approve or disapprove persons who are nominated to be on the parole board, but the governor's council does not act as a parole board. It acts on the persons who are nominated to be on the parole board. That all makes sense. Oh, good. I'm just... I'm it, like, is, <laughs> it is astounding, those numbers that you just mentioned about the different the commutations and, and parts. Yeah, and, and people, you know, obvi- you know, people aren't aware of it, just, you know, just like Bill was talking about earlier, that people aren't really aware of what the governor's counselor does and your governor's council does and how important it is. And, you know, nobody thinks about judges on a daily basis. We don't think about judges. And you only think about judges when one of three things happens. Yeah, one is you're going to court and you ask your lawyer, who's the judge and how's this going to work out? That, that's, that's number one, when you have to go to court. Number two is when a family member or friend has to go to court. And number three is when there's some issue that is really important to you as a human being that is before the court, like Roe v. Wade, like an environmental issue, whatever that happens to be. And then you pay attention. And just like Bill said, the first question your client asks you or that you ask yourself is, who is the judge? And, the, and which is great because then it is not only important, it is super important. It is hyper important. It is the most important thing to you. It's the first question out of your mouth. And unfortunately, on the day that you go to court or on the day that that issue is going to be decided, you don't get to have sort of a lineup of judges and say, oh, I'm, let me, I'm going to pick that one. You don't get to pick your judge on the day you go to court. The time to pick your judge is through in Massachusetts is through your governor's counselor And this race is really important because, as we know, those judges serve in your community here in Hampshire County, Franklin County, Berkshire County, for 20 to 25 years. It's a quarter century of justice that's going to be served, and so you have to get it right. We've been speaking with Jeff Morneau. He is a candidate for governor's council here in the 8th District. All of the candidates will be on our show. Uh, We'll have all of them here uh, in the studio and or on the phone next Tuesday. Jeff Morneau, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your candidacy. Really appreciate you coming in this morning, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Bill, and uh, thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. At least one person has been charged after two people were stabbed last night at a Northampton apartment complex. The Assistant Northwestern District Attorney's Office confirmed that two victims were stabbed at the Meadowbrook Apartments in the Florence section of the city. At least one person is set to be arraigned in Northampton District Court in connection to the incident. Other details on the case, including the name of the suspect or suspects, or information on the victims, was not immediately available. 
The Northampton School Committee is looking for members for their COVID-19 ad hoc advisory committee. The committee is looking for infectious disease experts and other interested parties with health backgrounds to join. The committee held its first meeting on Monday and is tasked with reviewing the school committee's proposed mass policy for the upcoming school year and also advising the superintendent on strategies regarding the pandemic. The city of East Hampton will be holding a community event and vigil on Monday, August 29th to honor all those who have lost their lives due to a drug overdose. The East Hampton Health Department will host the event from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Nashawanic Pond and feature resource tables from multiple agencies, including Hampshire Hope, River Valley Counseling, and East Hampton Health Young Coalition. Monday is International Overdose Awareness Day. Dial Self AmeriCorps program is creating a mentorship program through Mohawk Trail Regional High School. The program will match mentors with students to provide academic, social, and leadership support. They're currently seeking applicants for mentors to work with students to make an impact on the community. Partly to mostly sunny today, warm with a high of 86 to 90. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 80s and 70s, overnight lows in the 60s. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, more humid. Afternoon showers and thunderstorms, a high of 84 to 88. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El doctor Anthony Fauci, el principal experto en enfermedades infecciosas del país que se convirtió en un nombre familiar y en objeto de ataques partidistas durante la pandemia de COVID-19, anunció el lunes que dejará el gobierno federal en diciembre después de más de cinco décadas. Fauci dirige el Instituto Nacional de Alergias y Enfermedades Infecciosas, es el principal asesor médico del presidente Joe Biden y también dirige un laboratorio que estudia el sistema inmunológico. Si bien la pandemia de COVID-19 lo presentó a millones de estadounidenses, ha hablado directamente a la nación sobre numerosos brotes, incluidos el VIH-Sida, el SARS, la gripe pandémica, el ébola y los ataques de antrax de 2001. Al anunciar su partida, Fauci, de 81 años, llamó a sus papeles el honor de su vida, pero dijo que era hora de seguir el próximo capítulo de mi carrera. Conocido por su franqueza y por su capacidad para traducir información médica compleja al lenguaje cotidiano, Fauci ha sido un asesor clave de siete presidentes, empezando por Ronald Reagan. En otras informaciones, el expresidente Donald Trump solicitó el lunes a un tribunal federal que impida temporalmente que el FBI revise los materiales que incautó hace dos semanas en su casa de Florida hasta que se pueda designar un maestro especial para supervisar la revisión. A veces se puede designar a un maestro especial en casos muy delicados para revisar los materiales incautados y asegurarse de que los investigadores no revisen información privilegiada. La búsqueda de Mar-a-Lago del 8 de agosto marcó una escalada significativa en una de las muchas investigaciones federales y estatales que Trump enfrenta desde su tiempo en el cargo y en negocios privados. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. The Rabbi, Justin David, is off today. He is actually working. He's not taking the day off, but he cannot be with us. The Reverend and the Rabbi is our weekly uh, time with the Rabbi and uh, or a ra- or a 
rabbi or two, because we have a second rabbi who is regularly with us, Rabbi Ricky Kozowski. Uh, the, our regular reverends are the Reverend Avery Elizabeth Blackburn and Reverend Michael McSherry and Pastor Carol Bull, who is with us this morning. I would like to rewind this tape a little bit, uh, mm. Re uh, Reverend Pastor Carol Bull, and start by reintroducing our reverends and rabbis to our listening audience. So I'd ask you, could you spend a couple minutes and tell our listeners how you came to this position, how you were called to this position, what your background is? Um, and then we have two very important topics we want to talk about. But let's start with, I think it's an important topic, uh, how to put this. Who are you? And how did you get yeah. here? No, I'm, I know this yeah, answer yeah, in a second. Thank but, you. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I uh, grew up in a very chaotic and dysfunctional home in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, Northfield, Illinois. And while there was lots of beauty and music and art in my family of origin, there was a lot of troubled times. And um, one time when I was under five, I was very distressed. Some horrible things had happened in my home. I went out into our beautiful backyard and I was depressed and I felt something and I looked up and a tree in my backyard was shimmering. And I knew that that was God. And later on, I connected that experience to Jesus. Um, I, so it was a very important experience in my life, but it kind of went underground for many years. I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, but I say now, you know, if God can find a little white uh, upper middle class girl in the suburbs of Northfield, Illinois, who's in deep distress, then that's possible for anyone. God in any form, God of all names. Um, so let's see, I moved from Northfield, Illinois, where I was part of a really loving community to Omaha, Nebraska when I was 13. Um, my father had lost job after job after job due to substance abuse and he got a new job in Omaha. So I went there and I had a very difficult adolescence uh, with two parents who were um, very sick with alcoholism and, and you know, kind of slow death as we call that. Um, eventually I went to uh, Whittier College in Southern California for undergraduate school. I have some Quaker roots in my family of origin, not, not actual family members who are Quaker, but my parents grew up in Richmond, Indiana, the home of Earlham College. Um, another Quaker school. Yes, another Quaker school. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. So I had, but I didn't go to church growing up. And uh, when my partner and I adopted children from Ecuador, um, we decided to bring them up in a faith community. And we chose Church of the Covenant, which is a UCC and Presbyterian church, which at the time had two gay ministers and a cadre of white lesbians adopting kids of color from all over the world. So that was an incredible community for us. And I began preaching there and singing in the choir. My partner did similar work uh, on the board and things like that at that church. Um, while I was there, um, someone who was very rude to me uh, gave me a brochure for a fellowship at Harvard Divinity School, which I received. 
was a three-year fellowship and um, where you could take three courses a year for free along with urban ministry uh, professors, one of whom was the Reverend James Lawson, who trained uh, students during the civil rights movement. Um, could you go back just one second? Just I, 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 I don't think I missed it, but hi, somebody handed me a pamphlet. I think I'll apply to Harvard Divinity School and do that. Uh, could you just stop there for a moment and reflect a yeah. bit on that moment, if you would, please? Yeah. I mean, again, it was somebody who had been rude to me. So, you know, you have to be careful where you get your blessings. But um, in this case, I stuck it in a folder, didn't think much of it, opened it up later and said, this is the perfect thing and I would love to apply and I did receive the fellowship. There were six urban ministers and six people from the nonprofit world and at the time I was the director of staff training at the Pine Street Inn in Boston, a very urban, diverse, fabulous organization to this day. They now have more beds in permanent housing than they do in shelter and um, they're fabulous. Uh, so you went to Harvard Divinity School? Oh. Yeah, I got a fellowship there. Uh, it was an urban ministry fellowship certificate program. Um, and and then what year was that? Moved, what year was that? That, that was in, um, oh gosh, what was the actual year that I got that? I, I, I don't remember dates, so I'm sorry. But okay. we moved here about 15 years later. Okay. And um, I found Haydenville Congregational Church with the eminent and beautiful and deeply helpful Andrea Vazian to be in uh, connection with her and that community. And I became uh, in, in care for ordination is kind of what it's called, in discernment for ordination in the United Church of Christ. Um, and then I was ordained a couple years ago on Zoom, and I now I serve the United Church of Ware, a church that I'm hoping can become a multicultural church, and we're working on that. It's a mostly white town, but actually we just found, uh, I just learned there's a Puerto Rican church right across from us on the street that we have our church at, so I'm going to begin talking with them. Before you became the pastor at the United Church of Ware, uh, you were the uh, chaplain at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. T tell us uh, just a Give us a snippet on what that experience yeah. was like for you as the minister, because yeah. I suspect, having spent more time than I would have wished to in hospitals um, yeah. and watching people watching people pass, um, that it was a, a difficult difficult position, yeah. was it? Uh, yes, and it's uh, it, it's a it was a huge blessing that I got that. I started out as a, just a one or two day a week person and eventually became the coordinator there of chaplaincy and spiritual care. Yes, it, uh, all jobs come with their challenges, but I've had more difficult jobs than that, um, just to say. So once I became a chaplain there, I had done uh, some really tough jobs. Uh, I worked at the Department of Social Services and child abuse for 10 years. That was very difficult work as well. Uh, but I've learned how to get um, lemonade out of lemons. And um, I would have to say that Cooley Dickinson was a fabulous place for me to work. I got a tremendous amount of support there. Um, and each day, of course, you don't know when you get a list of patients to go see, you know, who's going to be in that room. And that's actually a beautiful thing because then you can drop your assumptions of what you think, even if you read their case record before you go see them, you drop your assumptions of what, who and what they are, 
and love them in the moment and become a much better listener. We're speaking with Pastor Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have two really important topics we want to talk about. The first of which is, how do we sustain ourselves in these really troubled and troubling times? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Picture perfect days in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots. Check out the new and expanded bar area, or dine outside on the patio. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. and serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And don't forget about Sunday brunch and live music every Thursday and Sunday. The Bridgeside Grill, right on the heart of downtown Sunderland. Hello, I'm Hampshire County Sheriff Patrick Haling, and I'm a Democratic candidate for sheriff focused on progressive community-based programming. I'm running for re-election this year. I've been your sheriff for six years, and I love the work I do because I help people to be productive members of the community. Please remember to vote for me on September 6th. Learn more by visiting our Facebook page or website, klaneforsheriff.com. Thank you. Paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Kahalane. It's the 14th annual Tom Kazenzi Driving for the Cure Charity Golf Tournament to support Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on September 27th at Twin Hills Country Club. To get involved, visit us online at TomKazenziDrivingForTheCure.com and together we can make a difference. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery. Route 9 in Hadley and online at WeinzickNursery.com. Help a local baby stay fresh. One in three local families sometimes have to choose between diapers and feeding their kids. Let's wipe out diaper need in our communities. Donate diapers and wipes or cash through August 31st during the United Way Diaper Drive. Drop off new or clean opened packages of diapers or pull-ups at locations across Franklin and Hampshire counties. Find out how and where to donate at uw-fh.org forward slash diaper drive. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. United Church of Ware, uh, united uh, meaning 
well, I guess I know what united means, but we united what was being united and what uh, denomination is the United Church of Ware affiliated with? Sure. Uh, the United Church of Ware was, is the current name for two churches that uh, united. So the United Methodist Church in Ware and the, and the congregation, First Congregational Church in Ware united. And this happens a lot with, uh, in Christian denominations at least, where each church doesn't have quite enough to make a go of it, so they, they unite. And in fact, Church of the Covenant is also a, is a Presbyterian and UCC church in Boston. Um, both the churches. So th that's the that's where the United comes from. Right, and you, and, so, and we have first churches here in Northampton, which was the same kind of right, exactly. combi combining exactly. of congregations. Um, let me ask you, I want to go back to something you said to us uh, earlier in the show, which was you had this experience of experiencing God when you were a child, a shimmering tree in your backyard in a time of distress for you. And then we fast forward this because we're doing quite a number of years here. Uh, fast forward, and you end up at Harvard Divinity School. What's the what's the connection, and what what called you to want to be a uh, person uh, serving God at that point in your life? And what's the connection? Yeah. So I mean, all of my work has has felt spiritual. Every piece of work. My first work when I was. Uh, 15 was as a nurse's aide in a county hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, where the poorest of the poor are served. And, uh, you know, they, at that time, you, they gave you a three-week course, and you went out on the floor and did a lot of things that nurses do. A little scary thinking back. But anyway, um, I found it fascinating and interesting. And the people there were people I wouldn't have normally connected with in a suburban, white suburban neighborhood. Um, so all the work I've had, there's always been a spiritual element to it. And I've been in two faith communities whose purpose is to grow pastors. You know, the best faith communities bring people up through the ranks to become leaders. Um, and I think succession planning is really important, especially today where we need so much love and care happening in the world in a variety of ways. Um, but certainly at Church of the Covenant, I was encouraged and um, uh, to preach and to sing in the choir and to be, I was a deacon, I was an ordained deacon there where I helped the minister uh, minister to the congregation, you know, it's too much for one or two pastors if you got a big congregation. So you, uh, you grow pastors and you grow people with those skills. Let's turn to the question I wanted to ask you today, which is, we, have, we are in troubled and troubling times, um, and you as a pastor uh, feel, I know, this, this obligation, this duty, this calling to help sustain people and bring sustenance into their lives. So tell us what your view is on how to do that, how to do that now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to share on this, and I, um, I want to say that... It, as pastors, I've often heard this phrase, we are to be uh, in, you know, we're to be in concert with our congregations, afflicting the comfortable, as well as comforting the afflicted. So one has to be careful when you're preaching and giving out information, um, you know, what moment is this in the congregation? You know, can they handle some challenge today or are they all just barely getting their seats there? You know, get, barely dragging themselves there. 
So it's a tricky thing. We, we have to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Um, and I want to say some of the practices that I talk about at church um, are that, that we are one of many. You know, I may be the, pa I am the pastor and I have a leadership role and I have certain obligations with that, but I'm also a person too that has issues that I need to work on, places where I get stuck, times where I uh, am exhausted and can barely make it there too. So we have to be honest about all of who we are and not be up on some kind of pedestal. You know, I, I, I say I used to run for saint and, and I don't do that anymore. You know, I don't want to be a saint anymore. I want to be one among many and uh, serve with love and care. Um, but one of the main things I've been sharing with my congregation is stories from the past uh, it, so not only present humans, but also people from the history books um, uh, and communities and movements that inspire us. So whether it's scripture or other places, we need to always keep in mind people have lived through these things before. Maybe not the identical things, but some of the same things. So I'm going to give you an example. I've, I've preached on Julian of Norwich a couple times. Julian of Norwich is the, the famous words that she's known for are that she believes she received from God and Jesus were, I am able to make all things well, and I shall make all things well, and you will see for yourself that all manner of thing shall be well. And people misquote this a lot, so it's important to get the words right. But anyway, that's what she's known for. Um, she was Which, born. Were we in, talk, you're talking about a historical figure, Julia yes, Norwich, an actual saint. person. She's saint. Yeah, she's an actual person, but she was made a saint over time. You know that doesn't happen right when you're there, but over time through the hierarchy of the church. She was born in the medieval area in 1342. Uh, she lived till around 74. Um, she only 20% of men could read and write at that time. The percentage of women who could do so was much lower than that. She is the first woman to have written a book in English. And one expert states that her writing is the first great masterpiece of English prose. It's called Revelations of the Divine. Now, the theology of the Middle of the medieval church at that time dictated that all human suffering was caused by sin and a punishment meted out by God on the unworthy. At six years old, she, uh, the black plague came. When she was 19, another plague descended on her and she and her mother began taking care of the sick. At age 30, she became quite ill and had visions during her illness and was on the brink, this is according to tradition, on the brink of ascending to heaven, and yet she chose to stay with Jesus in his suffering. And she experienced Jesus looking at her saying, lo, how I love thee. And for one, this is another person who writes about her, and for one equally startling moment, she believed that God loved her and that God's love is unconditional. It's not a punishing God. 
And the, le- um, and the lesson of Julian of Norwich, or Juliana sometimes she's referred to, I think, um, of Norwich for today? Is that if she can live through two plagues, and I didn't even get to numerous wars, and 30,000 people in her town dying, and hearing shrieks of people dying all the time right near her window, if she, and she can write a book in English, she was stunned to hear she had to write a book in English, from God of her understanding. For her to do that was an almost impossible task. Uh, Heretics were burned for reading the Bible in English at the time. So if she can do that, then, then we too, in these very troubling times of climate change, of war in Ukraine, of racial injustice, we too can rise to the occasion and be loving using spirituality and uh, people who are brilliant and courageous as examples. We have been speaking with Pastor Carol Bull. She is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. She is our, one of our regular participants in our Reverend and the Rabbi series. Thank you so much for being with us today, Pastor. We really appreciate you sharing your story and sharing your insights, really. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy, save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans, classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's